welcome to episode number 14 of the Dads on Tap podcast. My name is Scott Maudsley and I'm your host and also the founder of Dads on Tap, a nonprofit I started to help craft better dads. You can learn more about our work and our mission at dadsontap.com. Today, I have the privilege of interviewing a new friend, Jason French. He's the president of Christ in Youth, a nonprofit started in 1968, and they're dedicated to partnering with local churches across the world to impact teens. Jason, man, it's an honor to have you today as our guest. So welcome to the Dads on Tap podcast. Man, it's good to be here. And trust me, I'm not old enough that I didn't found it in 68. So I'm not that old, but I've just been around a good long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, our topic for today's podcast is being an intentional dad. And I'm really excited. Can't wait to get your thoughts, not only from your own parenting, which I know you have some great thoughts for us, but also you get a chance to see students across the country and across the world. And I can't wait to hear what you're seeing and how that relates to us being an intentional dad. So. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I am. Um, it can be a good conversation. Well, we'll get there in a second. Before we go there, I always like to begin by asking our guests about their dads, because so much of who we are is shaped by our dads, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. So tell us, get started with just tell us a little bit about your dad and your relationship with him. Man, that is a complicated question. I'm sure some of the dads you get listening have got that. Some of them got really great dads, great stories. Mine is a little, mine's a little complicated, man. How do I do this quickly and succinctly without going into, you're welcome to ask follow-up questions. In a nutshell, I'm the product of a one-night stand. My mom was married and she made a mistake. She did. And I think people are more than their worst moment. They're more than their mistakes. That's kind of a story I tell my kids on a regular basis. But yeah, she had a one-night stand, got pregnant from that one-night stand, and then went back and realized what she had done and divorced her husband, and then was actually in a car on her way with the appointment book to have an abortion. I uh, was in the car on the way, and then had a friend driving her and just said, hey, pull over. I can't do this. And uh, turned the car around and ended up not going through with that abortion. And then, you know, she just was not great about choosing husbands there for a bit. So she went through a couple divorces and Great lady, honestly, just a sweetheart and just a good, good mom. But yeah, I had some stepdads come and go here and there. Yeah, it was one of those things. And finally, I guess it culminates where she remained married to my last stepdad for, you know, 30 some years, 40 some years, actually, before she passed away in August of 22, she died. But probably the last weird thing that's happened in terms of like this whole journey into fatherhood is I found out about 15 years ago that the guy she had been telling me, honestly, lying to me. I love my mom, but I can say that. I'd say it to her face if she was still here today. I lied to me and I knew she was lying my whole life. But I found out, I had the opportunity to tell that guy in hospice that he wasn't my dad. And that was an interesting experience. I just look at him man to man and him ask me the question and be able to say, no, you're not my father. And he goes, ah, I didn't think so. Is it this person? I'm like, no. Kind of walked him through who it was. And then kind of fast forward even to, to the last couple of years, I started looking for my biological father, did the ancestry.com and the 23andMe, started doing some investigative work, tracked it down, thought I narrowed it down, and then actually end up finding my biological family. And reached out. They finally contacted me after after two years of reaching out. And then about, you know, we kind of figured out, they put it together. And I got a call at one thirty in the morning when I got back from a trip to Ireland. And they said, hey, your dad, your biological dad is dying. He can't speak, but would you like to tell him goodbye? And so this last August, I jumped on the phone. He couldn't speak, but I had the chance to pray over him, to tell him who I was and what I was about and apologize to him for not reaching out sooner. And I just told him why I didn't reach out, why I delayed. I had a chance to, I'm a Christian, so I had a chance just to pray over him as he died. And then 48 hours later, he was dead. So when you ask me, <laughs> ask me that question, man, we got some twists and turns in there. And I think I wrapped up a really complicated story in about like six, 
Yeah, 120 seconds, two or three minutes. I don't know. That was pretty quick, bro. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to cover in just a couple of minutes. But yeah, I mean, I think some of your dads get complicated stories like mine. That's that my, you know, even my relationship with my stepdad today is complicated. So love him, love him, love him. And it's complicated. It is. Well, and, and Jason, one of the things that I have really enjoyed as, as I've kind of done some research, heard some things you talked about is how intentional you are as a dad. My guess is I do a lot of work with an initiative called Spiritual Fathers. And I have a primary spiritual father in my life. I was on a call with him yesterday for an hour and a half. And I'm guessing there were some men that came alongside of you that played a fatherly role that was pretty significant to you that showed you some things about spiritual life, about being healthy. Can you think of a guy or two like that that you could share about? Yeah, I think early on, my grandfather, he was a dairy farmer and he was really influential in my life up until about eighth grade and just someone that I still hold to to this day as being a real important figure in my life. And then honestly, my stepdad tried. You know, he really did. I think he wanted to. He, he just was in over his head and he had never been a dad. And all of a sudden he married my mom and was 27 years old with a high school, a junior high and a first grader. And he really wanted her, not us. We just came with the package. But I think he tried at times. And then I honestly had some men when our family actually started attending church, which is a whole other complicated story. Like we showed up three or four times in the parking lot and turned around and left because like we belonged to the first church of Budweiser is what was the church we belonged to, man. We went to church four times and left, but we finally darkened the door and started going. I had some men in that church that were just really impactful in my life that were good for me to watch was able to get into some of their homes and see what being a dad looked like. And that was formative for me. Yeah, that's great, man. Well, let's. I would like to move on to talking about your family now. Love for you to tell us, brag on your family a little bit. Tell us about your wife and your kids. Yeah. So Janice, we have a great marriage, honestly. It's been good. We've been married for almost 32 years now. And I just love her. I genuinely do. It's been amazing. We got four kids. We've got my oldest, Justin. He is living in Louisville, Kentucky with his wife. He's working for a craftsmanship type company. He eventually wants to become an artisan. Thought he wanted to be a doctor and realized he doesn't want to listen to people's problems all day. He doesn't want to work under fluorescent lights. He said, I can't do it. So he's in the process of becoming a craftsman. His wife is actually doing her residency to become a surgeon. So she's done with med school. She's becoming an ENT surgeon. They're in Louisville right now, Louisville, Kentucky. And then my other son, Levi, he's married. He and his wife, Kim, live in Phoenix. And He's got a lot of my grandpa in him. He thought he wanted to be an engineer, but again, came back to me and was like, Dad, I can't sit indoors all day because I love the outdoors. I think it's, I don't know, there's something about growing up in the farm world that gets, I think it gets into the blood of the second and third generation. And so for him, he's worked in everything in the golf industry that he thought he could do. And the only thing he's found he loves is like, Dad, I just want to be on the course in the morning. He's like, I want to do everything from fix sprinkler heads to set cups to mow to fix bunkers. He's like, when I'm on a course early in the morning, kind of like my grandfather on a tractor, you know, it's the same principle or me in a deer stand. He's like, dad, that's where I find peace. He's like, so he's working to become a golf superintendent. Sydney, my only daughter, she is all things right with the world. You can have three boys, just leave me her. The boys would admit that as well. She is all things love, joy, peace, patience. Like if I would have known what, what girls are like, I'd ask Jesus, give me all girls. Like she's amazing. <laughs> she's awesome. She right now is kind of a junior, sophomore, junior in college. And she actually went to go into in a ministry, which is really kind of cool. She's pursuing that. Yeah. She's a joy. And then we are adopted my great nephew, who is my son, Silas. He's 13 and he is an unbelievable little athlete. And so we live in a world where we go from football, watching him play linebacker and running back to then we go into wrestling where he wrestles all year long. And then at the same time, he's doing travel baseball practice. He'll do trace travel baseball until it goes up to football. 
And in between all that, he does CrossFit about five nights a week. So he's just a beast. But we get a good family, man. We just, we get along well. We love each other and it's good, man. That's awesome. So I have a Silas as well. My Silas is 18 and he's getting ready to graduate high school in a couple of months. So I definitely uh, I love that name. And then I have a 13 year old daughter, Sadie, who's finished up middle school. So. Love that. Well, we got some similarities there in terms of our kids. So I didn't see myself being back with a 13 year old right now. But man, the fact that Jesus, you know, it's an unfortunate thing that happened with him. But the fact that Jesus allowed us to adopt my son, my great nephew, but also my son, it has been, he is a joy. And he is, it's been good. So his dad passed away when he was about six months old. Well, and so I want to tie our first question into this for a moment, because we got a lot of dads that are out here listening. And just so you know, the average age of our dads, we've got a lot of young dads. The average age of our listeners, our connections is, is a dad between the age of 26 and 40. And so we got a lot of young dads, middle school, elementary, and we got a lot of dads that came out of rough, rough circumstances. Probably more likely today to have come out of some level of trauma than to have come out of a lot of health. Think just hearing a little bit of your story of your childhood and growing up and then thinking about, you know, 30 plus years with your wife and a great marriage and what you're experiencing with your kids. Could you just give dads who are listening some thought around how did you take what you were given growing up and then how did you translate to something different to create a different thing for your family? You know, what was the, I know your faith was, I'm sure, a big part of that. But, you know, when you look back, is there a couple of just words of wisdom you'd give our dads to say, man, here's something to pay attention to, or here's something I thought a lot about as I was a husband and a dad. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, when I was probably, I was pretty young, man. I got invited over a kid's house and my mom and my stepdad, they were not abusive at all. My mom was a great mom. And my stepdad, although he was harsh and stern and disconnected, was not abusive. He really wasn't. I would never want to paint that as being something more negative than what it was. Because there were some people like going through way more difficult things than what I went through. But for me, what really shifted my thinking is I went to spend the night with a kid at a pretty young age. And when I went in that house, it was on a Friday night, man. And I remember we all, like the dad came home and usually when my dad came home, I threw him a couple of Budweiser's and then that was about all I would talk to him for the rest of the night. You know, he was work construction. He was tired. I gave him a couple of Budweiser's, get out of the truck and, you know, and I would usually try to get him a little tipsy. Because when he was sober, he's a little meaner. When he had a few beers in him, he lightened up, became a lot of fun. He wasn't an angry drinker? No, not at all. I mean, honestly, I, I would tell him, like, and I said this to his face, like, man, you are a lot more fun. And I know that's a toxic thing to say, but it's, it's part of my story, man. It's how I navigated life with him. And I know people are like, oh, you shouldn't say that. Like, no, that's my story, man. I'm going to tell the truth. But I went to this kid's house, and when his dad got home, and he didn't take two beers to interact with his kids. And then they all sat around and I remember sitting down at dinner and they all started grabbing hands and I'm like, how in the world are we going to eat? We're all old men. And then they all started looking down at their plates and they started talking to somebody. I didn't know what a prayer was. I'm like, what are they doing, man? Like, it was like, what's going on? It was whack. Like, I never seen prayer. Like, I didn't know what it was. And then that night they went out and they played wiffle ball and they hung out. And I saw something in that family that was so transformational, such like intimacy and a level of kindness. And he was a dirt poor pastor. Like their house was just trash. I always say it was trash in terms of like, it was just rough, man. I, mean, I grew up in a rough house. I grew up in a tiny little rough house. Their house is rough too, man. But there's some joy in there. And I think for me, what, what transformed me out of trauma was realizing it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. So I quickly became the white sheep of my family. And even before, you know, my nephew passed away, my son's father, Whatever, we were helping move. And he's like, man, Uncle Jason, how do I become more like you? I want to be a dad like you. 
you know, I want to be a husband. I want to be like you someday. It's like, hey, bro, there's not a lot of good in me. The only thing you see good in me is because I discovered this guy named Jesus and he completely rocked the way I live. He changed the way I live, like the way I think. And so in terms of like what transformed me, what impacted me, man, no doubt my faith is everything for me. Like it's, yeah, that'd be my real clear, honest answer. Yeah, bro. I love that. And you know, it's really intriguing about that. So in some of the research that I've been a part of recently on young men, and there's so many young men, and a lot of our listeners are kind of walking away from the church. You and I grew up in a culture where at least church speaking, where the biggest question was, is, is it true? And, you know, we spent a lot of time and energy trying to prove that what we believe is true, right? I mean, you think Josh McDowell, evidence that man's a verdict. I mean, all these tools, right? Lee Strobel. And, and what the statistics are telling us is that young men th- and think millennial down, they actually don't care much about, is it true? What they care about is, does it work? And if they don't see it working or they can't figure out how do they make it work in their life, they're like, why do I waste my time? And what I love about your story there is you saw a family that like, this was true. Like the way they're living is means something, right? And I need to explore that more. I think that's pretty cool. It was transformational when we started going to church. Like I remember for me, you know, when you asked, does it work? And I don't want to just go preaching off the top here. That's not my intent for your listeners, but it is part of my story. And so like, even for me, the way we discovered church as a family, like when I say we were poor, like, man, we were poor, like real poor, but we were well fed. We were taken care of. We just, we grew up in a, we had a, we lived in a, <laughs> it was a one bedroom fishing cabin. My brother slept in a trailer house, like no heat other than a fire, you know, pot belly stove, no air conditioning, like nothing like that. My parents slept on a screen and porch and I'll never forget, man, we gone to church this one Sunday and this is what I realized, man, it's real and it works. Like the reason why I think why, why it transformed me is it, it wasn't just going to a service. Like we went to this church, they asked my dad, like, honestly, we sat in the parking lot four different times and left. I was like, oh, we're not dressed for this. Oh, we shouldn't be here. Oh, we're late. The first time we walked in, they're like, they asked my dad, like, hey, man, uh, you, you know, hey, Dan, what, what church are you visiting from? And he's like, is this church in neighboring town? Like, oh, later the service, they said, well, we got, we got this guy, a guy here named Brother Dan. He's going to pray us out. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, like ask my dad to pray. He's like, man, my dad goes to first church at Budweiser. Like I said, like, this is weird. But the crazy thing happened is shortly after, people invited us over to their home. They welcomed us like ice cream at this place, at people's homes. They're like so kind. And I watched families there. I watched dads there. Like I was, I was already a student because I knew what I was experiencing was wrong. Well, not wrong, but it was broken. Long story short, fast forward, we lived out in an area that's a little bit, probably won't make sense to your people in Atlanta, but back in the day, you grew up, I think you grew up in a more rural aspect. We had to burn. I was in a little farm town in Michigan, man. Not even stoplight. All right, so we had, to, we had to burn our trash back then. There weren't, there's no such thing as trash pickup, man. It, oh yeah, I remember doing that. We set a field on fire one time, burning our trash. Yeah, so I set the woods on fire, and I ran outside to try to put the fire out, and I couldn't. My dad was working construction, and my mom, she didn't know what to do. It was back before pagers and cell phones, all that crap. And she called a lady from the church and said, "Hey, can you go tell my husband our property's on fire on our?" In our poverty state, there's no insurance. If this burns down his storage buildings, we're going to lose his whole construction business. And I'm trying as a young kid to put this fire out of my own, and I can't get it out. And that lady said, yeah, let me make one phone call. She made that phone call, and she drove down the road, told my dad. He told his guys what's going on. They all left and went home. He loaded everything up in the trailer so it wouldn't get stolen, drove home as fast as he could. And as he pulled up to our house, man, he couldn't get in the driveway. Like, he couldn't get in the driveway because there were... There were so many cars in our driveway, man. That lady had called that church and all the farmers and all the people showed up. And when he got there, my mom was stirring lemonade. And for me, that day, the church literally saved our life. 
And so when people ask, is it real? Like when it comes to like fog machines and when it comes to in like all these lights around a stage and the pastors want to get up their fancy tennis shoes and all that crap, like, man, that's not what changed me. And that's not what transformed me as a father. It was honestly a really healthy church with really healthy people who showed up, not just in that crisis, but they showed up. My wife had cancer. They showed up in all times and seasons as I've been a father. And as I've watched fathers, man, it's just been a constant theme for me. And so for me, I know there's a lot of people leaving the church, but I love the church, man, because she saved my family. Dad went out and broke every alcohol bottle after that. He's an elder in that church now. It's crazy. But I think the, a good, healthy church taught me what it means to be a father. Bro, I love that story. Sorry, I was a tangent. We didn't plan on going on, man. Sorry. No, listen, man. I love that story because honestly, we, my family went through homelessness. My dad lost a business, lost everything, right? And the only reason we survived is because of a little faith community that brought a rent check and put groceries on our front porch. And right, I mean, it's just like, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that kind of caring for others, you know? So I love it, man. So I know we got a bunch of questions to get through. I want to just take a minute or two, though, because you got some great thoughts for us on being a dad and some things in your home, but you also sit in a really unique seat, I think, in culture today with what you're doing with CIY and the work that you do. You get to see a lot with teens and with students. Tell us a little bit about your work and why you love what you do. Yeah. Well, CIY, Christ Youth, we're a not-for-profit. In a nutshell, what I'd say is we do events for local churches, for their young people. It's kind of what we do. And so We'll do events for preteens. We get events for junior high. We get events for high school. We'll see about 75,000 students this year, about 1,500 churches. So you can't come to our events unless you come through a local church. We say we're the bridesmaid, not the bride, man. We just love serving the church. And part of it is just, that's my story. My family was, I fell in love with the church long before I knew who Jesus was because it saved my family. And so our heart's desire is just to call young people to Christ. We also want to let them know that their gifts, talents, and abilities can be utilized for kingdom work, man, that, that these kids have got abilities now to do good things. And then again, we do it all through the local church. So we just love her even on her good days and even on the on her bad days, we love her. Yeah, because we all have them. <laughs> Absolutely. And so does the church. Yeah, she's not perfect. So let's kind of go a level deeper then into some questions. Based on what you're seeing out there around the country and the work you guys do, 75,000 students, right? Your team is interacting with a lot of young people these days. First question for you is, What's one of the things that most concerns you about the world that our kids are growing up in? I think be the impact of technology on identity and mental health. Okay. We get into that here in a little bit, but yeah, I think that would be, that'd be one of them. Yeah. Yep. That's a big one. And that's a pretty consistent theme around that question as we talk to different folks and different expertises. What, so the counterpart to that, what most encourages you about what you're seeing in the world that our kids are growing up in today? Or maybe let's even go, what most encourages you about seeing this next generation of kids? Yeah. And again, I don't want to throw shade you know, at millennials or Gen Z. It's not my intent. Millennials were really good at, I mean, it's going to be really harsh. And I don't want it to be. It's not my intent for a millennial listen. I'm not trying to be a jerk here. They're really good at pointing out everything that's wrong around them really good at pointing out the flaws in our society, the flaws here, the flaws in the church, this whole deconstruction thing. Like everything is from politics to religion to everything. Oh, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong. Gen Alpha was, Gen Z has been really good about, about not just pointing out, but talking about it. What I'm seeing in Gen Alpha is they might be the most similar to the boomer generation that we've seen is that they're going to be a get it done generation. They're not just going to point it out and talk about it. But they are a generation who is prepared to actually go out and do the hard work and make an impact. People think that they're lazy and motivated. It's simply not true. 
and that's not to throw shade at Gen Z. It's not meant to throw shade at millennials. This crew coming in, they're probably more like boomers in terms of our language to understand than, than any generation we've seen. That's awesome. But maybe a little less top down, but a little bit more collaborative alongside of that. Would that be fair? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it'd be very fair. Yeah. What's so, well, there's a lot of questions I could ask around that. Maybe, we may bring you back for, a, for another conversation there. because We're good. We're good. <laughs> what's one or two things you wished every dad today understood about raising kids, our kids today in this culture today, based on what you're seeing? Mm. I think in today's, this digital age we live in, that this veneer of convenience, that it masks a, a complex reality that our kids live in. Like, I get that they've got this unparalleled access to information and resources that are at their fingertips. You know, thanks to everything from smartphones, the internet, all the, you know, all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, this access has opened doors to challenges that our generation and previous generations just didn't face. Like, it's just different, man. You know, so like social media. Yeah, I get that it's connecting us. That's good. That's a wonderful thing. But it also, it introduces this intense pressure around image and identity compounded by like, just like things like cyberbullying and, and even just the unrealistic standards of what beauty or ability or talent are. Like, you don't even know what's real and what's not, what's filtered, what's not filtered. Like, and then just the sheer speed at which they can obtain information. Man, that's a double edged sword. Like, you got predatory companies that are exploiting that, just honestly hunting them down with harmful content like pornography at an alarming, crazy rate. You know, in my generation, you'd have to go find a magazine. You had to go pursue it and look at it. Here, I mean, I tell my wife, I tell parents all the time, it's like, no, 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 it's a different now. Now it's like the magazines are chasing them down the road. Like it's pursuing them. It's, it's hunting after them. And so while my scene, you know, from the outside, this generation has it all. The truth is that they're navigating a world that is infinitely more complex than it appears. That, that'd be my take. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. And so I think as a result of that, the diligence that's necessary to stay engaged, you'd say that's like exponential these days. Is that, is that right? Yeah. And it's and what I'd always tell parents is that, man, it is not a one-hour conversation once a month. It's 101-minute conversations. You know, it's every day. It's, I asked my son yesterday, he's like, hey, man, how are you doing on your cell phone? What's going on with that? Like, we finally got him a phone. We, yeah, it's been a big drama in our house. Well, he didn't get one. I got a phone. He gets to borrow it. That's another conversation. But telling parents like, hey, man, you know, it used to be that your mom or your dad might sit you down and have this long conversation about the birds and the bees. And that'd be the last time they'd ever talk about it. It'd be an hour-long conversation. Like, you can't do that anymore. It's not an hour-long conversation once a month or even once a year. It's 101-minute conversations every week is it was what I would say. Intentional conversations. Yeah. And, and there's so much we could go to there. And, I, and maybe this is related to your next question, but maybe there's something else that you want to share. But I know you and your wife, I've heard some stories you told about ways you've been very intentional in investing in the lives of your kids and having those consistent conversations. Is there a couple, maybe one or two kind of big themes that show up consistently in the conversations that you're having in your home? I mean, one of them is not probably what I want to talk about, but it, it'd be every one of my kids. Like, can you please anticipate? I preach that to my kids. Like, come on, man. You got to anticipate. Like, that's a, that's a different conversation every dad's having. At more of a heart level, I'd say I tell my kids often and I tell my son, but all of them, all, man, you are more than your mistakes and your losses. You know, your mistake is what you did. It's not who you are. And, and I live with my kids, man, you are more than your worst day. You're more than your worst mistake. And also, I talk to my boys, especially as they're getting older, about the two kinds of hard. 
you know, especially as it comes to employment. Like, man, there's two kinds of hard. You can either have a job that somewhat maybe is a little bit easier in terms of like the stress level when you go home. You're not thinking about it. You might make less money, but your your brain's going to be freed up and it might be physically demanding, but it's not going to be you know, maybe hard in your home life. But at the same time, you might not have the financial resources from that job. And so it's going to create create this kind of hard. On the other side, you might have a hard that, man, you bring that job home with you and you make really good money and you're constantly thinking about it and it demands your time. Okay, well, it might make your finances a little bit easier, but the give and take is going to be the other kind of hard, man. It's going to demand a whole lot of your brain, a whole lot of your energy. It's always going to be like this constant drain of your mental batteries. Like you're just going to choose your hard. Like all jobs are hard. Everything's hard. Choose your hard, man. So we have a lot of conversations about that. That's awesome, man. You know, it strikes me when you say that, that we oftentimes we want to remove the pressure, but I don't think we get to remove pressure. It sounds like we just get to pick the pressure we want to live under, right? Yep. Now, I I do say maybe there's a third kind of hard and that's ministry. But Jason, we won't go there. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good kind of hard, man. It is. It is. So along those lines, what are, I know you guys have had some great traditions and I know there's some age and stage things that you guys do. Could you just share a couple of practical ways that you guys play out these themes? Are there some traditions or practices that show up in your home consistently that have been really helpful for your kids? Yeah, I don't know if they connect to what I just talked about, but they might be just secondary. One of them is even my kids when they get, I got a, my oldest is 27, my youngest is 13. And if I'm grabbing my keys and I say, does anybody want to go with me? I taught them at a little bitty age, good things happen when you go with dad. And so that's the phrase, good things happen when you go with dad. Because we live out in the country. It's a 25-minute drive to, to Lowe's. You know, it's a 20-minute drive to Walmart. And so we just taught our kids, man, if you go with me and you'll spend time with me in my truck, you'll hop my old Dodge with me, you know, and you'll ride to town with me, man. Good things happen to go with dad. And I would always take, I'd always allow one to go, just one. And whoever jumped up first, whoever got that, yeah, they got to get a donut or they could get a candy bar or pop or something like that. But that was one of our traditions. And even today, if I'm sitting there and I say, hey, man, I got to run in town. I want to go. My 27-year-old go like, he'll yell out, good things happen when you go with dad. He'll run out. I mean, I, even, I don't care if he's 27, 47, 57. I'm still going to do that. Like if he goes with me, spends time one-on-one. That's one. And then, and I didn't read a book on this. People always ask me this. No. And I've been asking, you're going to write a book on it. And I have no plans to do it. And this is something I came up with on my own. Clear back, like when I first started parenting, when my youngest was born in 1996, is that I kind of laid out a vision for my wife and I. We do five rites of passage with our kids. And I know there's all these books now that's training to do rites of passage things. I think we were doing this before it was cool. But what it comes down to is one, we do when they turn 13. And my daughter went, all of them go. I take them on a bear hunt to Alaska. And, and so on that hunt, we do a couple of things. One, I have about 10 to 12 people write them a handwritten letter. And what I tell them is that these are the people you can go to if you're ever at odds with me. Like these people promise to always take your call. And so I enter into a parental covenant with those men or those women and say, well, you will always take their call. Like, I don't know what I'm going to do in life. If I'm going to die or I'm going to make a mistake, I'm going to alienate them. I just want to know somebody's going to take their call. And those people have always agreed that. And then we do some things like on that trip where we talk about leaning into fear, man, and don't lean away from it. You know, that lean into hard things, don't lean away. So we take them on a bear hunt in Alaska. And I know that some people bait and do those kind of bear hunts. We're not doing that kind. This is one where you're, you get a spotting scope. You're looking at the side of a mountain. You're in the middle of nowhere and you are going through some hard, difficult climbing. We put them into difficult, dangerous scenarios. And yeah, my daughter, she hates when I tell the story. She's like, dad, we're laying in the tent one night. She said, dad, there's no Wi Fi. I was like, what are you talking about? There's no Wi Fi. I was like, well, no, baby, there ain't, there ain't no Wi Fi out here. And she's, she's like, and she's like well, what are we going to do? I was like, what are you talking about? She's, what, what do we do if we get in trouble? I was like, ah. 
And so we got to have a good long conversation. I said, you can either, you can either hunker away, hunker down and hide, or you can lean into it. And, and so we, we do that trip. Second one is we send our kids when they turn 16, we to go up for at least two weeks into a third world country. And just to realize that, man, I love the country we live in, too, live in but it, in many metrics, this is an illusion compared to the rest of the world. And before they jump behind the wheel of a car, I want them to have just an appreciation, not to look at poverty in the terms of material possessions. That's not the intent. But just to go like, wow, I need to be really understanding of this place I live and what I've got access to and recognize, man, how do I be a person that is empathetic to those who don't? And how do I have a heart for the broken? And there's all kinds of poverty. It's not restricted. Relational poverty. There's all kinds of things. You know, we don't need to get into that right now. But that's the second one. Third one is when they turn 18, we ask them to go serve overseas for at least one to two months in a third world country. My daughter just got back from spending two months in Japan. She flew over there on her own, got her place to live. She lived on her own in Japan for two months, working alongside the church. The third one is before I will give them... And they don't get any money for college if they won't take that trip. We just don't get any money for college. And then the fourth one comes down to before they get married, we sit down and have a real honest conversation with their spouse and just say, hey, what are you looking for us as in-laws? Like, what do you want from us? Here's some things we learned in marriage at work. What do you need to, you know, you know, I ask my son, you know, what do you need to take from our marriage that you think is healthy? And what do you need to leave behind? Ask her, what do you need to take from your parents' marriage that you think is healthy? What do you need to leave behind? So an honest conversation before they get married. And the last one we've not been able to do just yet, it is before the birth of the first child. And I'm looking forward to this one. And this can be an opportunity for me to repent and to say, man, I spent so much of my time trying to parent to prove someone wrong or to make a point. And I don't want you to have to do that. Like if I've wronged you, I've offended you. I want to wash your feet right now. You know, kind of that biblical model. I'm not literally going to do that. I may, I don't know, but literally just get down and just say, will you forgive me? Cause I want you to parent not to be proving anything to me, man. It's not worth it. I want you to parent for a point of health. And if I did you wrong, can I just say, I'm sorry. And can you take a moment to go through the process of forgiving me so that you can be healthy as a dad or healthy as a mom? So yeah, we do, we're doing those five rites of passage. So my wife said, hey, you got to quit after five. You're like, you're gonna... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. Once you finish five. <laughs> That's plenty, man. Gets a little crazy after that. Such great ideas for our dads out there, man. So I know we got a couple minutes left, Jason. Let's do a lightning round for a second. So first question, we're circling back to it. Briefly, how do you handle technology in your home? Say, when it comes to things like Xbox, you only game on headsets with people we know. And that means our extended community. It's got to be guys in your travel baseball team. It's got to be guys we know, people we know, names we know, parents we know. When it comes to cell phone, it's not his, it's mine. For instance, like even like the way it worked out, like my wife gave me a new cell phone for Christmas. I already had a cell phone. And I said, hey, would you like to borrow my phone? And so he's allowed to borrow my phone. I pay the bill. It doesn't belong to him. We check it on a regular basis without any apology at whatsoever. We set that up a standard. Again, no cell phones or laptops in the bedroom. They're just not. And you charge your phone next to your, your mom's side of the bed every night before you go to bed. And it's your responsibility to bring it in. You don't take it to your room. So that's some of the ways we handle technology. Love it. Same question for social media. We try to be intentional on that. So I wish I'd done this with my older boys. I just didn't know any better. I was kind of new to the social media world back then. But we did this with our daughter. And we said, no social media till you turn 16. None at all. She self-selected. When she turned 16, we gave her permission. And she actually waited until she had passed 18 on her own. And she just said, man, she could see the negative impact. And so we told our son, was like, man, you're not having any social media. No Facebook, no Instagram, no TikTok, no none of that. You know, if you want, the only social media we'll let them get on is to watch maybe a YouTube video or something like that. But we don't do, I don't say that, I'm not trying to be prescriptive. It's just what works in our home. And I just see too many of the negative mental effects on kids in terms of social media, man. There's so much toxic things happen out there. And also, rampant with pornography. My gosh, rampant with porn. 
is just not a good place to be. It's not a safe place. So we just don't do it until they turn 16. And then we have all her conversations. And then she shows 18, actually. Love it. I love it. Yeah. The longer you can wait, the better. What's one of your best qualities as a dad? I try to be intentional. First time I've heard a, a, bio, a father figure in my life say, I love you, is when I graduated college, I was moving to California. And so I try to be real intentional about saying I love you. So this can be a good quality. Or maybe it's a bad quality. I tell my kids the truth. And so I just tell them, be careful what you ask me. And that's just kind of the rule with my kids. It's like, man, I want to tell you the truth. Like, and so the good news with my kids are they know if they ask me and I say, man, you did an amazing job. Like, it's true. And I'm never like if whether it's sports, or whatever's in life, I was like, I promise I said, I'll tell you the truth every time. So careful what you ask. I think it's a good quality because they know that when I tell them good things, I mean it. So, yeah. Right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so one of the things we say at Dads on Tap is none of us are perfect dads. And we could spend the whole podcast talking about the dumbass things we've done as dads, right? I mean, but so my question, I'm going to turn it around on you for a second. What's one quality you wish you could change as a dad or you feel like you need to change as a dad? <laughs> Man, I don't do all those temperament test things. I just don't. Everybody tells me what I am. You're an eight. You're red. You're all this crap. I don't do any of it. But I'm intense, man. I know that about myself. And so I have to say I'm sorry a lot, like a lot. And I'm real quick to say it and mean it. I'm just intense, man. I just say what I think and I don't pull any punches, pretty direct about things. And so that leads to me going like, hey, man, the way I said that wasn't kind. The way I worded that was unnecessary. Like I could have softened my words a bit. I also tell my kids, even on my best day, man, I'm winging this. I don't know what I'm doing. Like I didn't have a good role model growing up. So yeah. I'd say with the last thing I say on that is, man, I tell my kids often, man, that if I look at this kind of like a relay race, that I feel like I got this baton in a really bad spot. And it's like, hey, man, I handed you the baton in a better spot than you got it. Like, so at some level, bro, this is on you. I did the best I could do with what I had. And I can't apologize for every mistake I made. I wasn't a perfect dad, but I'm going to be crass here. And I sometimes I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, so my words are always great. I don't look at it, I go, but man, you sure as hell got this in a better spot than I got it. So just e- easy. I said, slow your roll now. Slow your roll, man. Like, I know it wasn't perfect, but you got a hell of a lot better pace than I got in the race. And they kind of laugh like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So I get grace for my kids on that. Love it. If you could download one positive character trait into your kids' lives, what would it be? Just that they would walk with Jesus. I pray this forever since they're little. They walk with Jesus all the days of their life. That's all I want for my kids. Love it. We're going to skip to the last two. What's the best advice or some of the best advice you've ever been given as a dad? Yeah, especially when my kids were younger. Somebody once told me that if your dad was young kids is that my kids are joining a life already in progress. And I see so many young parents trying to change everything about their schedule and their life and all this for little Johnny. And I'm like, no, little Johnny, toughen up. Like some of these kids, are like, yeah, they will, man. And I'm just like, you're joining a life already in progress. And so my wife and I very quickly said, we're not adapting. Like we kept traveling, kept doing our stuff. If we're out late, you're out late. If we're up, you know, whatever it is, man, we're not changing our whole world because of this little diaper wearing thing here. And I understand whether, you know, a few weeks old, I get that. But beyond that, man, we, I just, I've told my kids all along, like, hey, man, you're joining a life already in progress. Now, the tough thing is, is that as they get older and they're doing so many sports, sometimes I'm joining their life that's already in progress. And I got to watch that balance, man. That eats my lunch sometimes. But I, I would say it's one thing I tell younger parents is like, hey, man, you continue to be, be husband to your wife first and you guys do your life and bring them along with you. Don't be changing everything just because little Johnny here. Like, now they joined you. You didn't join them. That's good. Okay, on the other side of it, what's some of the worst advice you were ever given as a dad? I don't know if it's terrible advice or not, as much as just bad modeling. And I think that so many dads, they don't know how to show an emotion sometimes that is not irritation, anger, or disappointment. And I feel like those are the natural 
the natural emotions they know how to show. They don't always know how to show like and who their kids are or real happiness or truly let them see pride in your eyes or let them hear that, man, I love you or let them see you tear up at times and cry over things that matter to you. And I think the, the part of it, I don't know what's bad advice and much bad modeling is this disconnected, reserved dad that doesn't have to show emotions that aren't really restricted down to irritation, anger, or disappointment. Like, that's what I'd say. That's good, man. Well, bro, there's so much more. I worked to the end of our conversation, but I want to just finally, as we close our interview, you know, one of the things I always tell our dads, whether they're sitting in one of our chapter events or whether they're listening on our podcast or engaging with us on social media is, it's not enough to hear great thoughts. Like we got to take these things and we got to put them into practice. And our goal is just always, I just say, if dads can leave with one thought, one idea that makes them a better dad, then that's been a big win for us. So I just wanted to give you a chance as we get ready to close here. If you just wanted to close with one thought or a challenge that you wanted to leave with our dads today that are listening, just kind of one final thing, what would that be? What would you say to dads to challenge and or encourage them? Yeah, I'll go more in the world of challenge since I've already told you I'm intense. And then I'll let you figure out how to do the encouragement part of it. My challenge would be, it'd be a couple of phrases I would give you. Number one, don't complain about what you permit. Don't complain about what you permit. There are things that you don't like in your family about who you are as a father, who your kids are, how, how this is, or how that's going. Chances are, chances are that, that you permitted this long enough and it's probably a whole lot on you. And don't complain about what you permit. And then I'd say go along with that is that, man, whatever you begin to tolerate, you will eventually come to accept. And if you tolerate the fact that you're not a good dad, or you're not an attentive dad, or you don't do this, then you'll just accept that as your narrative. And I sure as heck was not willing to accept that in my life. And I'd say that those two things, man, don't complain about what you permit. And number two is that whatever you need to tolerate, you eventually come to accept. So careful what you tolerate. Bro, that's good. I'm already thinking about what am I permitting, right? Or what am I complaining about right, <laughs> right now, man? That's a great thought. <laughs> So, man, this has been fantastic, Jason. Thanks so much for your time. How can our listeners, if they want to connect to you or know more about the work of CIY, what's the best way for them to get connected to you? Yeah, I mean, real simple way is just CIY.com. I mean, and if they, go to, if they want to contact with me personally, they go to our staff page and find my email and all that kind of stuff. There. I think my cell phone's even on there. But, but yeah, CIY.com tells you a whole lot about who our church is, who our ministry is, and, and just the churches that we serve. But then they can also reach me on our, on our staff website there. Fantastic, man. We're so grateful for the time. Dads, be sure to go check out CIY, you know, see their website, maybe follow them if they're on, see you guys on social media, got some on social media. I also want to say, be sure to follow us on social media at The Dads on Tap on Instagram for more content each day. And listen, guys, if there's anything that's been said today that just, man, you're like, man, I'd love to talk to somebody or I have some questions or thoughts, please reach out to me at scott at dadsontap.com. I'd love the opportunity to connect with you and if you're interested in launching a Dads on Tap chapter in your community, want more ways to find out how you can connect, feel free to send me an email as well. But as I always do at the end of our podcast, let me just finish with a final challenge. The most important thing, guys, take what you've learned today and let's go be a better dad. Yeah.